This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Arizona, home of filmmaker and night sky photographer Harun Mekmadinovich. And I'm a filmmaker in a general sense. If you've ever seen a time-lapse video where the stars seem to be dancing across the desert, or a photo where the Milky Way seems like it's jumping out of the picture at you, there's a good chance it's by Harun. I mean, it's been a kind of an Instagram phenomenon in a way, but I love it because it's propagating the idea that night skies are important. His images have over half a billion views online. And his most recent film is Sky Glow, a documentary about light pollution. Anybody that sees the night sky in its pristine form is going to have the question, what is that? They're going to know, like, how is, is that possible? Is that real? Yes, it's real. But why didn't I see it? Well, you don't see it because of light pollution. Heron teaches photography at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, where stargazing is built into the city code. Back in the 1930s, astronomers built two observatories in Flagstaff. But pretty soon, the city was so lit up that it was interfering with the astronomy. And that led to a, a unique uh, once-in-a-billion-years uh, event and when it comes to light pollution, which is that the local government of Flagstaff decided to enact a lighting ordinance. Today, it's perhaps the only city in the world where you can see the Milky Way which is like unreal for a town of 70,000 at times people. There's no such place anywhere in the developed world. In fact, if you're looking for darkness, Heron says there's no better place to go than northern Arizona. What makes northern Arizona very unique is that you have highway access to these incredible places. Like you can take Route 40 to a class one night sky spot. Like you can literally be on a highway, get out of your car, and you need this pristine, beautiful night spot. Basically, Arizona's night skies are unreal. So go to unrealaz.com to shed some light on a stargazing trip. That's unrealaz.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. I don't know if you saw this when it came out, but about a month ago, doctors in Scotland began, when appropriate, telling patients to do things like go birdwatching or take a hike. It's part of a nature prescriptions program, and it probably represents some kind of tipping point in our understanding of just how good for us going outside really is. Outside contributing editor Florence Williams has been on this beat for a while. The first time we had her on the podcast, it was to talk about her book, The Nature Fix, which is about the benefits of being outside. And one of the concepts that she talks about in that book is the three-day effect. How after three days in the wilderness, there are all sorts of mental benefits. Your prefrontal cortex slows down. Your senses become more acute. You're even more empathetic. But at the time, there were lots of gaps in the how and why of the three-day effect. So now she's back with a series for Audible looking directly at what's going on in the brain and how people can harness the power of the wilderness for themselves. Today on the show, we're going to share an episode of that series that actually grew out of an outside story from earlier this year. Florence was headed out on a backpacking trip with a group of women who were the victims of sex trafficking and looking to heal from that trauma. Many were addicts, very few were comfortable outside. And this begs the question, does a three-day effect work for people for whom going camping is stressful? And not like, I forgot to pack the peanut butter stressful, but like, I'm in a new environment where there are lots of ways to get hurt or killed, and I don't know what's normal, or how to take care of myself. Would these women find any comfort outdoors? 
The answer is actually pretty surprising. Here's Florence. Not long ago, at about five in the morning, I woke up after a bad night sleeping on a cement floor, and I crawled under a desk to record some notes. I'm in a warehouse in Englewood, Colorado, and just spent the night sleeping on the floor with a bunch of other women from various shelters and safe houses in Atlanta. They are sex trafficking victims, had addiction issues. Some of them would be homeless. I was addicted to pain pills at nine years old. I started prostituting, I started doing heroin, you name it, I did it. And um, I got the wrong attention from a man and um, I got hooked on crack specifically and um, I was a horrible alcoholic. I was drinking almost two gallons a day, so, cause I was like, I'm just gonna go right back to him. Cause I, anywhere that I went, I knew that he would find me. I've really felt trapped there. Like I couldn't leave. We couldn't go anywhere by ourselves. Um, we were like locked in the house. Turns out I had some misconceptions about who's involved in sex trafficking. I knew that its main features include force and coercion. It's not like when you're a child, you play prostitutes and pimps, you don't. It's when it happens to you and you can't get out, that's when reality sets in. I think a lot of people have no clue. I told people I was working on this story and they were like, oh, international. And I'm like, no, these are women from the United States. No one has any idea that it's right next door. And it's politicians. It's officers, it's judges. I mean, you'd be surprised. There were six women, and they'd already been through a year of intense therapy and rehab. They'd come out here to Colorado to continue their journey. Like with the veterans, we were about to head out into the wilderness to test the three-day effect. I was worried because unlike the veterans, these women virtually had no outdoor experience. And this would be physically more demanding, we would be backpacking, not rafting. And was this even a good idea for them, especially given the kind of suffering and trauma they'd already been through? It was really demeaning. That was Clover, or at least that was her trail name. She was held captive for over a year in a house in Boston. It like really strips away. If you have any identity as a woman or um, any kind of like respect for yourself or... You know, no matter how small it is, to have to share yourself and have no choice. To help me understand this kind of trauma, I felt like I had to talk to an expert. Well, I think people have an experience that's basically too big for them to shake off. Denise Mitten runs the Adventure Education Program at Prescott College in Central Arizona. If we look at animals, if we look at even ourselves, when something happens to us, we kind of give a little shake to shake it off, and that really is useful. And as it turns out, when that doesn't work, it kind of gets embedded into our emotional regulatory system and makes our sympathetic nervous system get out of whack. On this trip, we're going to be looking less at data and more at theory. Well, for example, why wilderness therapy needs to look very different for a group of women like this than for, say, a group of war veterans. And what does it mean for the trauma therapists who work in the field? And there has to be that understanding from the very beginning and get-go that it's not going to look like a quote-unquote normal trip. Because this trip would upend everything we think we know about wilderness and healing. So what we're going to do is we're first going to start, and you're going to take your pack and just open up all the straps so that it can be as loose as possible. 
That's one of our backpacking guides, Chelsea Van Essen. It's morning one in the warehouse and we're packing up. These women range in age from 20 to 37. And I would say at this point, they are looking pretty apprehensive. So when we pack our packs, the bottom section is what we call our light and our fluffies. We want to protect our lower back so that it doesn't get hurt by a lot of the heavy stuff. I am nervous. What are you nervous about? I'm nervous about what kind of physical um, limitations I have. I'm nervous about the nighttime creatures in the mountains. Have you slept outside before? Yes, I was homeless for a period of time, so um, the streets is what I'm used to. But How long did you sleep outside when um, you were I was outside for a period of three years in Atlanta. I think sleeping in the mountains will surely be easier than that. But she says no. The streets were definitely a lot easier than mountains I'm quite intimidated by. <laughs> you think about when you're in the outdoors, you know, you're combining all the elements and the senses and space. Elise Nicely is the founder of an organization called She Is Able. As the women are stuffing their donated fleece and rain jackets into their packs, Elise says her mission, which is to connect trafficking survivors to the great outdoors, has a serious foundation. I think giving them that space to just breathe is huge for them. But I think there is this physical, psychological connection where, okay, my feet are moving, my hands are moving. I'm all of a sudden, mind and body is coming together. The physical challenge combined with all of the healing elements of nature and the outdoors provides these profound moments for them. At first glance, Elise seems like an unlikely activist. She was a University of Georgia sorority girl, and she's just 27 years old. Her organization is only a year old with a tiny budget. My passion for this group of women started in college, but really, you know, the defining moment for me is I spent some time in India working in the red light district of Mumbai. And for the first time, I think in my life, realized the gravity and the just horrific nature of slavery and um, especially, you know, sexual assault and trafficking. And, you know, I had a moment in India where I just felt like, man, this is just it for me. In the U.S., girls get sucked in by fragile life circumstances, including abuse and neglect. Clover was first sexually abused as a young girl in her mother's house. Today, she wears colorful hats that she crocheted herself. You have your choice taken away from you and to have your sexuality really ravaged in the most extreme ways and then have no control over what's happening to you, it does things to you in like all kinds of levels, mentally, emotionally. The pervasive fear seeps out into other areas of their lives. Chelsea, our guide, is well briefed on how to make them feel comfortable out here. Just like emotional safety is, again, a highest priority, and in that spiritual safety as well. She has a background in trauma therapy, and she's trying hard to issue reassurances as we head out. We recognize that if you don't feel safe, if you're not safe, then nothing else is going to happen. This refreshment of nature that we're talking about, this power of healing of nature, none of that can happen if our brains are not feeling safe. These mountains are rugged, especially now in October. With weather coming in, these packs are heavy. Oh, this is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> we all load up into a big white van, and some prayers start up. 
These women have been in rehab centers run by evangelicals, and it's rubbed off. Thank you that we get to see your beauty and we get to see everything that you have created in all of us and just everything that's around us. God, we know it's from you. We just pray for safety. Above all else, we pray for safety. As we drive to the mountains, the women write down their fears on pieces of paper and we read them out loud. Being cold. Mm. Amen. No rest. That people will judge my story. They're good at fear, too good at it. Here's Prescott's Denise Mitten. Basically, at this point in the media, the outdoors is made to seem like a very frightening place. And women have not been particularly welcome in the outdoors for the last couple thousand years. And so we are told as women that it's a scary place. It's a scary place for us. We have to be careful. And what I find fascinating is the research I've done on women's writings from the 1800s to the present has shown that Often women will start with that fear and that trepidation. And then as time goes on, it's like, gosh, I've come home. This is wonderful. I love it here. For veterans with PTSD, nature can be a place to find refuge and also a way to help them feel present. But for people like Clover and others with long-term sexual trauma, nature has an even taller order. To provide a place to relearn to trust others and more importantly, to trust yourself. But first, you have to trust the land. Look at those mountains. By late afternoon, when we get to the trailhead, it's raining and it's mixed with snow. We're at a place called Monarch Lakes, and we're about to enter the Indian Peaks Wilderness. The women are walking slowly. We're stopping often to adjust our layers and fix blisters. They're tired. And the altitude, which is about 8,000 feet, is just kicking everybody's butts. After about an hour, we see something pretty cool. It's really windy out, and it's still snowing. I'm a moose and a baby moose. A moose family. They look like they're just grazing right now. It's so cool. I know. Somebody said this is very rare. This is my first time ever seeing moose in person. Same. <laughs> Are they mean? No. Well, I catch up with a woman who said she was afraid of critters. She's picked out a trail name, Falling Tree. I had no idea that the outdoors were that beautiful. I've never been to Colorado, but I've never actually seen real mountains either, so this is really cool. I've uh, reached new limits of what I thought I was capable of, for sure. What are you afraid of now? Hmm. I guess I'm, I'm my biggest fear. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid of what I won't allow or what healing I won't let because I'm uncomfortable. I think I'm my biggest fear. You know, what will I do when I get scared? Will I, will I use the tools I have? Will I ask for help? So I think me, I'm afraid of me. Do you think there's still a danger for you in relapsing? Most definitely. I think there's always a danger of relapsing if I don't continue to keep my relationships positive, you know, and just as soon as I think that it's there's no problem or there's no worry of a relapse, that's when I need to be the most scared. According to Elise, Falling Tree is right to be scared. It scares her, too. I think data shows that the average woman will relapse three to seven times in her recovery process. And that's challenging for me to wrap my head around. Um, sometimes I go on these trips and I leave emotionally hungover, truly, for weeks, and I take it very personally. 
So, no, I most definitely think it's always a step away. It's just if I choose life or choose death, and right now I choose life. After three long hours of hiking, we arrive at this flat, forested area along a creek. It's nearly dark as we set up our tents, and the temperature is falling fast. The plan is to leave here in the morning and hike to a new, higher camp. There are already patches of snow on the ground, and we're all just really looking forward to huddling by the campfire. Dinner's finally ready, but it's this thin Dickensian soup. I think it must just be the first course, but it's the whole deal. It seems like the demons we're all battling creep out at this time of night. For Falling Tree, it's fatigue. For Clover, it's her aches and pains. My demons are loneliness and sadness. They're still plaguing me after my marriage ended a few months ago. We all turn in early and get into our sleeping bags. We hope they're going to be warm. It's morning two. I'm walking through the woods. It's seven in the morning. The aspens are so beautiful. And uh, it was a really cold night. We all crawled into our sleeping bags around eight o'clock or 8.30 with Nalgene bottles filled with boiling water that we put as close to our bodies as we could stand. And that was nice, really nice. That saved us. And I shared a tent with Swirl, Vanilla Bean, and Chocolate Drop, (laughs) who are awesome. We make a morning fire and check in on how everyone did last night. Elise from She Is Able starts us off. So this is really tough, and I was really cold, but I think I'm learning a lot about understanding what does strength and pushing myself look like. Even Elise looks a little ragged. Her sorority smile, gone. Actually, nobody's looking too stoked about being in the mountains this morning. The temperature has finally warmed up to about 30 degrees. And what awaits us for breakfast is lukewarm oatmeal. We'll be beefing it up with gobs of peanut butter. This just kind of sucks. <laughs> This is a lot of y'all's first time, you know, doing this, not only camping, but we're in the backcountry of Colorado in, you know, the beginning of snow season. For me, my biggest priority is that this trip for y'all is healing and freeing and fun. And if that's not what's being accomplished, then we as, as your leaders need to reassess and, and make decisions. I'm beginning to wonder about the wisdom of the three-day effect out here. Maybe nature healing works better in good weather and with a more resilient group of people. Well, I had a pretty rugged night last night. I didn't sleep. My toes are freezing. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm a little overwhelmed. It's definitely different. This is real camping. (laughs) I had no idea. I'm just struggling like with like the whole period thing and like being in the woods and not being able to like properly take care of myself and like just feeling gross. Like if it wasn't so cold, I would so jump in the river. Last night I was pretty miserable. My feet were pretty cold and I kept hitting like, I thought wet pockets, but it was cold pockets apparently. Um, And I was just shaking and I was like, Lord, what have I done? I live in Colorado. I 
do backpacking trips all the time. This is really hard. That's another one of our guides, Hope Swearingen. She's also struggling to stay warm. So just know that our mentality isn't like, just suck it up at all. And so we're definitely, yep, going to be open and going to be flexible and just going to be in tune with how you guys are doing and then what that means for the rest of the trip, okay? Then our guide, Chelsea, suddenly jogs up to the fire. It turns out she ran all the way back to the trailhead to try to find some cell reception. And she has some news for us. Good to see you all. I just wanted to affirm that we want to make this a really positive experience for you. And and so in light of that, we're going to change the plans up a little bit. We're going to have this be a base camp for tonight. So we're going to sleep here again tonight. And we're going to just go on a day hike up the trail that way a little bit more. And we can show you on the map some more things. You don't have to take your packs. So you won't get your packs. You you don't need to carry anything. So then tomorrow... We're going to hike out to back to like the trailhead. And then for tomorrow night, we're going to be staying somewhere else, like at a lodge. That's the new plan. We can eat way more food. So, yeah, again, apologize for how little food was last night. And I um, just can imagine how hungry you all were. And so no, I wasn't dreamt about those. The craters. Yes. I dreamt about chocolate ones, peanut butter ones, <laughs> all types yes, of ones. Changing up the plans like this is a big deal. Well, it's basically an evacuation, but nobody's calling it that. Chelsea told me later that she was nervous about requesting this change from the outfitter because this almost never happens. And part of the point is to tough it out, whatever the conditions. But the trip leaders thought about this hard and they knew what they were doing. Here's Elise. You know, your classic wilderness experience A lot of the messaging is around, hey, we're going to push you out of your comfort zone. We're going to challenge you and we're going to really push you to get there. With the women that we work with, they live in survival mode. And so we actually want to be communicating the opposite. They're already surviving. Yeah, they already are surviving. With our women, we actually want to push them into a comfort space. And so how you plan the trips and really kind of react on the trips looks very different. They're already so sensitized to sort of fear and anxiety. Absolutely. And so we don't want to play into that. We actually want to create healing in that. So there's sort of the sweet spot you're trying to hit of adventure and novelty, but not kind of anxiety. Yes. Denise Mitten from Prescott College also had some things to say about the change of plans. One of the things that can happen when women are abused over and over again is there's no way out. So in this case, the guides were wonderfully appropriate by saying, look, we can get out. Metaphorically, it models to these women that when they're in a situation that's becoming too harsh for them, it is one, okay, and they are able to leave that situation and they're still okay. It seems like that's also part of the feminist critique of the traditional wilderness therapy model. You know, that it's it's not just about going until you, you know, drop and then become stronger through almost dropping. It's about, hey, if it's not comfortable anymore, maybe it's not working. Absolutely. We want women to understand what being able to have authentic choices and say, is this what I want to be doing right now? And be able to authentically say yes and no. And what a wonderful place to give that a try in the wilderness. One person who's had a particularly hard life is Clover. By late morning on the second day, her mood has brightened. 
along with the others as the sun hits the forest and temperatures rise to about the 50s and 60s. Okay, I'm with Clover. <laughs> yes. And we're in a beautiful part of the trail. Do you want to describe where we are? Um, we are surrounded by a whole bunch of pine trees. There's rocks with a little bit of moss on them. It's beautiful. Clover has a high beam smile. Despite many years of sexual abuse, drug addiction, and a prison term for fraud. How are you feeling on the trail today? I am feeling a little bit exhausted, but I um, am honestly doing a lot of self-reflection. There was a time, like a point where I started almost getting like emotional because my chest was hurting and my lungs were hurting. So I just have to keep on being realistic that, you know, my body is, <laughs> I did not treat it very well. I didn't take care of it over the years. And I have um, smoked drugs for a long period of time. Clover, what did you smoke? I smoked methamphetamine and I smoked lots of cigarettes. But that time period is so blurred because I was always like jacked up. I ended up getting in a really dangerous situation with this guy. He was like a cult leader and I ended up stuck there. It was um, dark, very dark stuff. So you were sort of in captivity? I was in captivity. Holy shit. And it was um, definitely sex trafficking going on. It was really demeaning to have to share yourself and have no choice. Despite these dark tales, Clover and the other women are moving more easily as the benefits of nature seem to be kicking in. They sing and they laugh. And back in camp this afternoon, they take their journals and they go sit by the creek or go inside their big tents. It's helped Vanilla Bean notice some things about herself. She's 20, with a mane of really thick, dark hair. She feels tired today, but as she puts it, at least she's feeling. And this wasn't always the case. I was on Xanax and um, alcohol. Xanax was my main addiction. I felt like I always wanted to suppress. Like, I wouldn't remember anything, and I liked to suppress how I felt, and it was like I wasn't even alive. It was like dying without dying. What she and the others have been experiencing on this trip, and even sometimes cultivating through drugs, is known as disassociation. Elise later explains this phenomenon to me. A lot of science and data shows that women that are assaulted um, really are kind of violated. The first thing that they do psychologically is they automatically disconnect from their physical body. So if they are um, experience any type of violence, they then their mind goes one way and their body goes another. Denise Mitten, the adventure therapist, says that being in nature, benign nature, is especially helpful and maybe even uniquely helpful with dealing with this aspect of trauma. While combat veterans and other traumatized individuals may also disassociate, it's especially common with sexual assault survivors. The more time we can be in nature and experience this oneness with our own body and understand what our body is doing and feel connected, sometimes that will help with disassociation. Again, it helps when it's a calm, activity. If it's something extremely arduous that's over our heads or way stressful, the women will continue to disassociate. Why is it important to stop the disassociation? As we leave our body or disassociate, then it's easier to do things that, that we really don't want to do. 
it's a somatic experience where they need to actually feel their bodies and appreciate their bodies and feel like they're okay. Being here and just like feeling the breeze hit my face, like feeling my nose go cold, like feeling my fingertips cold, like yes, it is really cold and it's hard, but I can feel it and I can remember every single detail. Vanilla Bean and the others are grateful for this. At the fire at the end of day two, the talk turns to the mountains around us. Those are so amazing to me, yet God created them, you know, and so it, was, it just kind of put it into perspective for me. Like I'm physically, I'm tiny compared to the mountain. The women pray for each other, and even for me, which I can't quite get over. My problems, which I've shared with Wildflower, seem so mundane compared to theirs. I see your, you struggle. Um, you kind of shared with me your heart a little bit. You draw that out and make me feel comfortable. And, do, and that's a real gift. When you shared just about your divorce, um, I've been there. Father God, I just thank you. I pray, Father, that you would begin to fill the deepest, darkest crevices of her heart, her broken heart, and that when she becomes confused or heartbroken or vulnerable, God, that she would be vulnerable with you. Father God, I just pray that in the days ahead when she is um, overwhelmed with sadness or, or pain or sorrow, I just pray that you would meet her right where she is and that she would not feel alone. Thank you. Wildflower. Wildflower. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's very powerful being prayed for. I know people say it works. Hey, good morning. It's morning three. I'm going to put my mitten on because it's about, I don't know, 35 degrees yesterday. We did a beautiful hike in the sun. Lots of red and yellow kind of willows on the slopes. And um, especially on the way back after lunch, I just started thinking, yeah, men, who needs them? That's where I want to be. And it felt good. All of these women have said that they can fall victim to abuse because they believe they deserve it. On some level, they do not feel worthy. And they've all said it. They're so clear about it. And it kind of put things into new clarity for me, too. Even though I knew self-esteem was kind of at the root of what I've been going through. But I think that the humiliation of women is such a pervasive and kind of culturally sanctioned state of affairs. And there are times in our lives when we are particularly susceptible to feeling that way. I could totally be one of these girls, too. So could anyone. That is our central challenge how to maintain a sense of worth and self in this crazy world. Okay. Gotta go pack up my sleeping bag. It was so cold that we're hiking out a day early, (laughs) which is really nice because it's supposed to be 32 tomorrow. By afternoon on day three, the snow flurries are picking up, but we're hiking back to the waiting van. It's like our big white pumpkin waiting to take us back to the Crystal Palace that has hot water and ample supplies of food. Okay, Elise, where are we? We are in Toth Hope House, I think. We just left Indian Peaks Wilderness about two hours ago. Uh, we're staying here tonight just um, due to some weather concerns. So 
That's awesome. It's a beautiful house. So what did you hear is coming in? Oh, man. A big winter storm is coming in. Just heard that between 9 o'clock tonight and 3 p.m. tomorrow, there's supposed to be 10 to 14 inches of snow hit the Rocky Mountains where we were staying. So incredibly grateful for um, a warm home to stay in tonight for us. I get the sense the women are very grateful, too. (laughs) (laughs) They're so excited. I think that the factors of I get to shower and there's uh, heating is a huge win. They don't have to sleep on air mattresses, so I think they're really (laughs) pumped. They are psyched. Yeah. But we're not exactly removed from nature. The ranch house sits among grasses and willows outside the tiny town of Hot Sulphur Springs. Chelsea tells us to wander around a pond and to find a stone that represents something about us that we want to cast off. We find these rocks and one by one silently hurl them into the pond. It's a surprisingly moving exercise for these women, some who cry while they throw these rocks with all their might. I do this too, and it feels amazing. Once again, I'm really impressed by the intuition of these young guides to lead us into these moments where we have these raw insights. I cast off the idea that I'm somehow broken just because my heart is. Afterwards, I feel a little lighter and a little better. Throwing a rock to throw something away that I no longer need, no longer want... Denise Mitten refers to moments like this as metaphorical agents of transformation. It's coming back to that somatic piece, that body piece. I'm actually getting it out of my body. We believe that metaphoric piece is very powerful. You're open to change, and you actually are changing and rewiring. After two days in the wilderness and one on the edge of it, you could feel a shift in the group. You could feel their relief and their joy and their renewed commitment to doing the hard work of recovery, both alone and with each other. I sensed it, the guide sensed it, and I realized it wasn't just brought on by nature, but by the hard-earned feelings of safety and beauty and nurturing. And have you watched transformation happen? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, absolutely. This is Elise. And I think that for me as the leader is like... I'm done. That's huge. I could leave a happy woman and be so, so happy that it's unreal. It's a huge victory. There were a lot of tears this weekend. Yes, a lot of tears. And the power of grief in mourning is vital to the process of healing. Your body needs grief. You need to recognize the cost of things. And, and then that connection to your body again can, again, amplify healing and restoration and hope and the value and beauty of who you are. Day three, are you feeling any three-day effect? Yes. (laughs) You know, I think that's really, really cool, and I, like, learned a lot on this trip. I am very rejuvenated. Day three, I'm totally relaxed, and I'm allowing my emotions and my feelings and allowing myself to be myself. I've set goals today of things that I want to do to, like, really, really change and, like, really be able to find myself again. Tonight, night three, we have one final round of group talk. Elise asks what it felt like to throw the rocks into the water. Here's Falling Tree. I think throwing that rock for me really meant that, you know, I've spent all this time 
getting tools and and healing and doing this that and the third and I've, I've got a foundation of greatness if I allow it the biggest thing I've learned on this trip is that I've spent a long time telling myself I can't and I can and I thank you guys for everything for me it made me very aware that um that I was holding on to something and here's Clover the ex-con who was held captive. This trip has been, um, for me, very, very healing. I've had my body taken away from me so many times, and it's been an object to be tossed around and used in any way that anybody wants by people that I loved and trusted. I know what I need emotionally, but like I didn't know that I needed any healing physically. I didn't know there was deep, deep, deep wounding there. Yeah. Like really deep wounding there. And I had never grieved the loss that it had caused me. <sighs> so when I threw that rock into the, the water, I realized that my body has never, I never really claimed it as mine. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so I had to, you know, I took back my body like this is mine. <laughs> and it hurt, it hurt what they did to me. I never ever like really realized how much pain I went through. I always minimized it. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't feel it so I can go through it. Because I had to survive. (sighs) I came to a place where I had to be okay with being raped. I had to be okay with it. Because it happened every single day for a really, really long time. So I'd never realized that I could actually own my body. It could be mine. As the storm came in and a solid white blanket covered the range, I felt like the great room at the ranch house was blazing with something. Heat, warmth, and yes, freedom and forgiveness. Like if you guys think for a second this stuff is not coming with us, you're probably mistaken. We're I'm so grateful, so grateful, and I will definitely keep in contact and stay connected with all of you guys. This was true. I still get messages from Clover and Wildflower asking me how I'm doing, and it always knocks me over in the best way. And I find myself transported back to the laughter and to the golden light of the Indian peaks. And yes, <laughs> be praying for you all the time <laughs> when you least suspect it. That's Florence Williams. She's a contributing editor at Outside and author of The Nature Fix. She wrote this piece and did the field recording too. Her Audible original is called The Three Day Effect. This episode was produced with Mary Beth Kirchner. The executive producer was Martha Little. Robin Wise was the technical director. Mark Phillips composed the music. This episode was brought to you by Arizona. 
Go to unrealaz.com for more. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.